We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. This Danger Zone program's about how a Russian double agent, Colonel Oleg Gordievsky, fled from the Soviet Union using only a plastic Safeways shopping bag and a Mars bar, and how an American spy got that old South American feeling, ay 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 ay, and married his dream Latino woman of very expensive tastes and needs. So he became a Russian spy to give her the lifestyle that she needed and that he couldn't afford on his CIA salary. And because of him, at least 10 men died. Colonel Oleg Gordievsky had first started working as a spy for the British MI6 in 1974, when he was with the Russian embassy in Copenhagen, Denmark. Now, in 1978, he learned he was about to be transferred back to Moscow. If the Russians suspected he was a spy while he was in Denmark, then to escape, all he needed to do, if he still had freedom of movement, was to leave the embassy and walk across the street. If this happened in Moscow, how could he escape? Was it even possible to escape? It seemed unlikely. The Soviet Union, author Ben McIntyre in his book The Spy and the Traitor, tells us was an enormous prison. Everyone in the Soviet Union were prisoners. Heavily guarded borders prevented people leaving. McIntyre says that there were over a million KGB agents and their informants monitoring everyone. For example, during the Stalin era, wives who did not denounce their husbands, often the husbands had done nothing wrong but someone had denounced them, were themselves sent to gulags. Children were encouraged to denounce their parents. If Gordievsky had to escape from inside the Soviet Union, he would have been in Moscow, and from Moscow the nearest border was hundreds of kilometres away, and he would have to travel by car. An escape plan was devised by MI6 called Pimlico, and Gordievsky was drilled intensively in it. I'll talk more about that later. But right now I want to talk about the American CIA agent by the name of Aldrich Ames. Aldrich was generally unhappy. His marriage was disintegrating, he drank too much, and he never had enough money. To my way of thinking, all of these problems should have been sending out warning signals to the CIA. I mean, if you're a spy and all of these things are going on in your life, the only fix you can get is money. A pay rise in your job isn't going to give you enough to make you happy. You probably need a big injection of funds. 
Ames had a role in the CIA of trying to recruit spies. He'd been posted to Turkey. That was a real spy hotspot. He was then posted to Mexico. His wife didn't go there with him. His career was really going nowhere. Ames knew that he was smarter than all of his bosses, who were idiots, and all of his co-workers, idiots also. While he was in Mexico, he had a series of women, none who meant anything. But then, in mid-1982, that special woman came into his life. Rosario Casas Dupuy. She was everything. 29 years old, flirtatious, vivacious, dark hair, flashing smile, immature, needy, greedy. Her family was Colombian aristocracy of French origin. She had grown up surrounded by wealth, pretty well all of which had been lost by the time she had grown up. She longed for luxurious living. Rosario and Ames fell madly head over heels in love. She thought he was a rich American diplomat. When she found out that he was married, poor, and a CIA pen pusher, he was in serious danger of losing her. He promised he'd divorce his wife and quit the CIA for something better. Divorce he did, and it was expensive. Quit the CIA... He didn't. He was 41 years old. He didn't know what else he could do for a living. And that was all too much like hard work anyway for the lazy Ames. But he did have an idea about how he could make more money and it wouldn't involve much work. After the world had managed to avoid falling off the nuclear cliff in 1983, Burton Gerber the American head of the CIA's Soviet section, was, in 1985, to put it frankly, just plain embarrassed by the enormous successes that the British were enjoying because of their Soviet super-spy. The British have always proved amazingly tight-lipped where it comes to intelligence secrets like Ultra during World War II. And... MI6 refused to tell the CIA the name of their spy. Jobber was passing on a stream of amazing intelligence to President Ronald Reagan from a spy whose identity he didn't know, that the Brits had. It didn't make him look good, he thought, so he ordered the whole of the spying resources of the CIA be used to find out who the British Soviet spy was. The man ordered to lead this mission of spying on your friends was Aldrich Ames. Ames was by this time the head of the CIA's Soviet and East European Division counterintelligence section. Ames was now 43 years old. He lived in West Virginia at a place called Falls Church near Langley, where the CIA headquarters were located. He was $47,000 in debt. He had started fantasizing about robbing a bank. 
An internal CIA assessment of him noted that he was inattentive to matters of personal hygiene. His lunches were usually liquid and long. The sultry Latin American beauty Rosario was now living with him and they were engaged to be married. She didn't have a job. She needed all of her time to go out and spend Ames' money, which he didn't have. Ames, to find out who the Brits had inside the Soviet Union, had to backtrack through all of the intelligence the Brits had given the CIA from this mystery person. He also followed the trail of two Soviet spies who had been caught in Scandinavia and another two caught in England because of intelligence from this mystery spy. In March 1985, Ames had successfully, but not conclusively, identified who the Soviet agent probably was. The candidate he'd settled on was Colonel Oleg Gordievsky. Gordievsky was now given the CIA code name of Tickle. Meanwhile, things with Gordievsky were going well with his career in the KGB with a lot of useful manipulation by MI6. On 28 April 1985, he was chosen to be the next head of the Soviet intelligence in London, to be the Residentura. What should have happened next was that Gordievsky should have been left with the keys to the KGB safe in London, the Holy of Holies with all of the deepest, darkest secrets of the KGB. But that didn't happen. Gordievsky's rapid promotion over a man who was his senior in the London office, Leonid Nikitenko, hadn't gone down well. Now Nikitenko was putting obstacles in front of Gordievsky, including holding back a lot of very top-secret communiques that he was receiving before he returned to Moscow. Ames, pretty certain that he knew the identity of this very high-ranking Soviet double agent, now had something that he could use to finally lay his hands on the big bucks that he needed. The reason that Gordievsky was a double agent was because he believed that the Soviet Union was evil. Ames was a double spy for the money. To him, his job stank and his promotion to the head of the CIA's Soviet and East European Division counterintelligence section was the last promotion he was ever likely to get. Rosario was out spending up big in the high-end Neiman Marcus department store. They were dining regularly at the Ritzy The Palms restaurant. Ames wanted to move out of his one-bedroom apartment into something bigger. He wanted to pay off his ex-wife. He wanted to have a big, expensive wedding to tie the knot with the beautiful but shallow and money-hungry Rosario. He wanted to own his own car outright. He had information to sell to the KGB that was worth big bucks. Ames began putting out his feelers to the KGB by leaving a small parcel at the Soviet Embassy in Washington for the head of Soviet intelligence there. It didn't give away any information, but it did have enough information there 
to show a few important things to get their interest. It showed that Ames knew a great deal about the Soviet spying operations in Washington. It gave a false name that he had previously used in New York, which the Russians would know about. He revealed that he had the names of some people in the Soviet Union that the Americans were developing as spies. Cunningly, Ames got the approval of both the CIA and the FBI for a meeting with the senior KGB man in Washington. The reason he gave was that he was trying to develop a military attaché at the Washington Embassy as an American spy. On 15 May 1985, Ames met with the Soviet agent Chuvakin. After lunch, Ames drove to a scenic lookout overlooking the beautiful Potomac River and looked inside the plastic shopping bag that had been handed to him over lunch. Inside were 500 $100 notes. The biggest manhunt in KGB history was now launched by their K-Directorate to find out who the high-ranking spy in their midst was. By the end of the next month, Ames had sold all of the information that he had to the KGB. On 16 May 1985, the day after Ames' meeting with the KGB, Colonel Oleg Gordievsky received a telegram telling him that he was required to return to Moscow in two days' time to meet with Viktor Chibrikov, the KGB chairman, and Vladimir Krayuchukov, the head of the first chief directorate, the two top men in the KGB. His appointment as the head spy in London still hadn't been confirmed, which was worrying. Gordievsky used an emergency number called out of a payphone to arrange an immediate meeting with his MI6 handlers. He had to decide whether to return to Moscow or to defect immediately. If he was not found out and was appointed as the head spy in London, the information that he would be able to give the English would be unbelievable. If Gordievsky had been in it for the money, like Ames was, he would definitely have cut and run at that time. But he was in it because he was trying to improve the world, especially for the people behind the Iron Curtain, who were living lives of desperation. The KGB didn't have a lot to go on. They were far from sure who the high-level British double agent was. The man whose job it was to find the British spy was the head of K-Directorate, Colonel Viktor Budanov. While he was in East Germany in the 1980s, one of his young underlings was Vladimir Putin. Under the new leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, appointed in March 1985, the KGB was not as heavy-handed as it used to be. Budanov saw himself as a detective. He had to ferret out spies not by torture, but by intelligence, cunning and wile. Before Gordievsky left London, MI6 went through their Operation Pimlico escape plans for Gordievsky if he had to try to escape from Russia. Gordievsky left London for Moscow on an Aeroflot flight at 4pm on 19 May 1985. 
When he got back to Moscow, a number of things became apparent to him. His apartment had been entered and searched by the KGB. He knew that because there were a number of locks on his door and one of the locks he didn't have a key for, never did and never locked it. But the KGB, after their search, had. He had to get a locksmith to get in. A colleague, Boris Bokarov, involved with what the KGB called its illegals, who operated espionage networks in foreign countries, bumped into Gordievsky. He asked him why he was being required to pull out the illegals from England. That was a major alarm to Gordievsky. Gordievsky sent a prearranged signal to London that he was going to activate the escape plan. The signal was simple. He asked his wife how the children were. MI6 operatives had bugged the telephone in his home. It was their job to pick up on this signal. They missed it. The best laid plans can go astray oh so easily. On 27 May, Gordievsky grew increasingly desperate about his situation. He took a pep pill that one of his handlers at MI6 had given him before he left London. When he got to KGB headquarters that day, he was told that two agents wanted to interview him about the possible penetration of the London Embassy by a spy working for England. He was taken by car to a compound. When they first arrived, some sandwiches were produced and some Armenian brandy. The brandy had been spiked with a truth serum. It seems that the pep pill that Gordievsky had taken that morning largely neutralised the truth serum. He was able to keep control of what he was saying and didn't slip up. That must have been off-putting for his interrogators, who were expecting to get something. Eventually, the combination of the truth serum, the pep pill, the Armenian brandy and the sandwiches made Gordievsky nauseous. He threw up and they took him to a bedroom so that he could catch some sleep. Luckily for Gordievsky, this attempt at proving that he was a spy for the English ended in dismal failure. He was still allowed total freedom of movement. The KGB under Gorbachev needed more evidence before they could be sure that he was their man so that they could arrest him. On 28 May, a man from the Soviet Embassy in London visited Gordievsky's wife and told her that her husband had suffered a minor heart attack. She and her two daughters would have to urgently return to Moscow. The Soviets always used a person's family as a way of bending their targets to do what they wanted. This was a very dangerous development. What would happen next? Gordievsky had to be worried when his wife and children showed up unannounced at his apartment in Moscow after being lured to Russia with the story of his non-existent heart attack. Gordievsky felt his wife out about sneaking out of Russia through Turkey. Her father had been a KGB agent. She didn't know that her husband was spying for England and she wasn't interested in leaving Russia. It was too dangerous to tell her the truth. His planned escape route was through Finland, so even if she was interrogated now, she would be sending any efforts to prevent his escape 
off in the wrong direction. The KGB weren't in any hurry because Gordievsky was in the heart of Russia and no escape was possible. They could take their time to nail him. MI6, when they learned that Gordievsky's family had been flown back to Moscow, put Operation Pimlico into operation to rescue him from Russia. MI6 realised that their people, eavesdropping on the calls to his wife in London, had missed his signal that he wanted to be rescued. Now that his family was back in Russia, MI6 assumed that Gordievsky must already be under arrest and escape would no longer be possible. In any case, they continued with the escape plan just in case. The spies in Moscow at the British Embassy who were to carry through the escape plan for Gordievsky included Viscount Roy Ascot. His great-grandfather had been England's Prime Minister. He was 33 years old and an outstanding spy. He and his wife Caroline had been briefed on Operation Pimlico. They would be the ones carrying it out. The plan involved smuggling Gordievsky across the border with Finland in the boot of a diplomatic car. The British had planned for the possibility that Gordievsky's wife and two young daughters might escape with him, so a second car would also be involved in the rescue. It would be driven by Arthur Gee, another embassy official and spy with his wife Rachel as a passenger. At senior levels, MI6 expected the wives of senior spies to be involved and entrusted with some pretty high-level secrets. To trigger the escape plan, Gordievsky had to go to the central markets in Moscow and be standing in front of a certain bakery at 7.30pm. He had to carry with him a plastic bag from the English Safeways supermarket chain. He would wear a grey leather cap that he had recently bought and be wearing grey leather trousers. The British agent would pass by him carrying a green Harrods bag and would be eating either a Mars bar or a Kit Kat. The chocolate eater would also be wearing something grey. Eye contact would be made, but the British spy would not stop or talk to him. He would just keep on walking. Three days later, Gordievsky would catch a train to Leningrad. From there, he would catch a taxi to the station that was an icon of Soviet history, Finland Station, the station that Lenin had arrived at from where he launched the October Revolution. Gordievsky would then catch a train to Zelenogorsk, further north on the Baltic Sea. From there, he would catch a bus to the border town of Vyborg, just 42 kilometres from the border with Finland. The two British spies and their wives would be driving together to Finland in two separate cars. There was a parking lay-by off that road between Vyborg and the Finnish border. Gordievsky, after getting off the bus, would walk there and hide in the bushes. The lay-by was concealed from the road by trees. The British cars would pull in there and Gordievsky and his family would climb into the boots and travel from there in their diplomatic cars, which should be immune from being searched at the Soviet border checkpoint. 
then they would cross into Finland. Finland was under the thumb of the Soviets at this time. If the Russians found out that Gordievsky was in Finland, it would be a simple matter to have the Finns arrest him and return him and his family to Russia. The escape plan wouldn't definitely have been pulled off until Gordievsky was able to take off on a flight to Norway. The KGB had the practice of spraying the shoes of people that they wanted to monitor with a radioactive dust. This was most likely to have happened when the KGB searched Gordievsky's apartment. The dust wasn't detectable by humans, but their sniffer dogs could smell it. Things were very monitored for members of foreign embassies in Moscow. Those people, including their wives, could not speak about important matters literally anywhere. The Soviets had everything bugged, including inside their cars. Husbands and wives had to pass notes with any important information under their bedsheets when they were in bed at night. How bad is that? On 13 June 1985, Aldrich Ames committed one of the most spectacular acts of treason ever. He gave the Soviets the names of 25 individuals spying for Western intelligence against the Soviet Union. It was handed by him to Sergei Chuvakin. It weighed over three kilograms. Ames had decided that the best way for him to stay safe, not to be found out, and to enjoy his money was to remove anyone who could point to him as the traitor. And this betrayal of all of those agents would achieve that goal. One of the names he revealed was Gordievsky's. At least 10 of the spies exposed by him were executed by the Soviets. Soon after passing the information to Chuvakin, he received a message from him reading... Congratulations, you are now a millionaire. Time was rapidly running out for Gordievsky. On Tuesday, 16 July, he went to the bread shop and waited. He had been instructed never to wait more than half an hour. At 7.45pm, he made the brush contact with the British and the escape plan was on, subject to the approval of Margaret Thatcher. On 18 July, Margaret Thatcher was staying as a guest of the Queen's at Balmoral Castle. Margaret Thatcher's authorisation was needed for the British to launch Operation Pimlico, although it had in fact already been launched. Charles Powell was Margaret Thatcher's private secretary. He flew from London to Balmoral to get the necessary authorisation. The Queen's private secretary did not want to let him see the Prime Minister without knowing why. Powell wouldn't say why, but Charles Powell would not be deterred from seeing her. He finally got past the Queen's private secretary and entered Margaret Thatcher's bedroom late at night. The Prime Minister was sitting propped up in bed, surrounded by government papers. She had no hesitation in helping this hero who stood up to a brutal and cruel regime, gained his safety in England. The journey of the English diplomats, as they made their way by car to pick up Gordievsky, was one of enormous tension. At times, their cars 
were surrounded front and behind by KGB cars. But at the right moment, the pursuers gave up and let them go on their way. Gordievsky was the only one being taken out. He had had to abandon his wife and family. He climbed into the boot. He stripped off his clothes in case any of the radioactive powder was on them. At the border crossing, a unique way was found to head off the sniffer dogs that the border guards had brought up to the boot of the car that Gordievsky was hidden in. Caroline Ascot took her baby, Florence, over to the boot and put her on it while she changed Florence's poopy nappy. If there was any scent from radioactive dust, it was totally overwhelmed by Florence's more powerful scent. At 4.15pm Moscow time, 3.15pm Finnish time, Gordievsky crossed the border into Finland and freedom. The whole story of Gordievsky and Ames is told in the riveting novel The Spy and the Traitor by Ben McIntyre. By the way, being a cultured Russian, Gordievsky loved the classics and on the trip in the boot, the British played a series of Dr. Hook songs which drove him mad. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple, and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites.